I'm Tom Perumian, KTSA News. Now, the Jack Riccardi Show. All right, thank you, Tom. Good afternoon. Welcome to our dreadful little show. We have so much to get to today. I don't know how we can do it in three hours. It's, it's going to be a miracle if we can get it in there, but uh, we're going to try. You can join the show at 210-599-5555. Um, does anybody think about how this stuff looks? I, I'm talking about President Biden goes over to uh, merry old England, and he meets with King Charles. And I guess there's some story, there's some flap about he broke protocol, but the king was charmed by it, so it's okay. But, you know, we talked yesterday about how Biden kind of looks lost and confused and doesn't know where to walk and where to stand, and he's leaning on the king for support. The king's no spring chicken himself. But um, but I was thinking last night, he he went over there and talked with King Charles, and then John Kerry got into the act. John Kerry, who's not ha, doesn't have an elected position, doesn't have a, a, a Senate-confirmed position, has this climate czar mantle that they've given him. And he gets in on it. And they're over at whichever palace it was. And they're talking about climate change and how we have very little time left. And it's terrifying. Does anybody think about how this looks to the rest of us? You're at a palace. You've you've got the president of the United States with tens of millions of dollars in his bank accounts that he can't account for. You've got King Charles, who's just a just a nut. I mean, just just a just a weirdo. I mean, if he wasn't in the royal family, nobody would listen to him. And then you've got John Kerry, a grown ass man who's had plastic surgery on his face who can't even talk properly because he has so much Botox in his cheeks. I mean, my face wasn't that smooth when I was a baby, John Kerry. And they are telling the rest of us that sacrifices must be made, that the climate is changing, that, that there's very little time left. They're referencing scientists. Scientists are scared, Kerry said. I won't bother you with the sound bite. But scientists are terrified, Kerry said. We have very little time. And I'm thinking... Yeah, these are scientists that are working off models. They've been terrified for 40 or 50 years. They said 50 years ago we had too many people on the planet. They said 30 or 40 years ago we were going to run out of oil. They said 12 years ago we only had eight years left with uh, climate change. Plus, you guys are flying around on jets, taking 27-car motorcades, meeting in a palace. I mean... (laughs) How in, the, how in the world is that supposed to be persuasive to anybody? Does anybody think about how this stuff looks? And there was a story the other day of the Minister of Ecology for the Spanish government, uh, who, uh, they have a socialist government, and she did this um, media event where she rode to a climate meeting on a bicycle, Except she didn't, because there were people with their camera phones, and she took a limo till she was about, I don't know, a couple of hundred yards from the venue. And then she got out of the limo. So there's a motorcade, you know, she's like in the middle of several cars. She gets out of the car. 
They give her a bike. She rides the bike the rest of the way, like another 100 or 200 yards, to the event to promote pedaling for the planet, saving the environment. But while she's pedaling the bike, so, so it was a complete Rosie Ruiz fake bike ride. But on top of that, there's security cars in front of her and behind her while she rides the freaking bike. So it would have only taken one car to get her there. It took two cars to get her there on a bike. And you want to laugh, but you also, again, you want to think to yourself, how stupid do they think we are? How stupid does King Charles and Joe Biden and John Kerry, how stupid do they think we are? Does anybody think about how this looks? And I heard a great question. I think it was Tucker Carlson on one of his Twitter shows. Uh, somebody asked a great question about the climate change uh, movement. And they said, can you name one thing that they want to change or impose that doesn't make them either more powerful or more rich is there one thing with all the stuff they've thrown out there all the things they want to do all the all the uh, mandates they are loading up into their authoritarian cannons is there anything that doesn't make them more powerful or more rich and I would add to that, is there anything that they are willing to do first? Like, Gandhi went on a hunger strike before he told anyone else to. And, you know, when you think about great leaders of revolutions, they're in the trenches, right? They're, 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 they're getting hit over the head. They're bleeding along with their followers. And in ancient times... If the king took his kingdom into battle, he led the way. He was on the lead horse, right? Way back. These people not only don't lead, they don't even lead from behind. They don't even make token gestures to say, well, look, we're, we're, we're tightening our belts too. We're putting away the private jets and the motorcades and the yachts and the, and the beachfront property. We're Zoom meeting instead of having international meetings with 180 countries flying into one town somewhere. Everybody leaving their engines running while we're at the meeting, which I'm sure is air-conditioned and catered, right? Have a Zoom meeting. Drink water. But no, they don't. They don't even... They, not only would they not do what I'm saying, they would laugh in our faces at the suggestion of it. Speaking of the way things looks, uh, the way things look, um, I got to play this for you. This is from uh, MSNBC. You probably are not a big Morning Joe fan, but Mika Brzezinski was ranting about how bad Biden looks. You know, he he doesn't know where to stand. He doesn't know where to walk. He looks like he's he always looks like he's about to tip over. He has fallen a couple of times, and she's furious about it, but not in the way you would think. Listen to this. Cut number four. I think his staff needs to own his age. I'm just going to be honest. I don't think they do a good job uh, helping out the president. And I'm not talking about it like I'm just saying if you are managing a president's schedule and you are managing a president getting on stage and getting off stage and doing getting on planes and getting off plane. And yes, he's 80. You need to be there for him and you need to make a pathway. And you sure as hell 
better make sure he doesn't fall on a sandbag. And I blame the staff for that. I mean, these okay, are hold the on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I want to play the rest of it. But so she's like, it's ridiculous what's happening with Joe Biden. I blame the staff. Oh, yeah, he's 80. She mentioned that briefly. I blame the staff, she says. And I get the point that, um, and we've made it on this show, I, I do wonder, like the people that are around him, I do wonder why he is so often in situations that he has to figure out or that look where he looks confused. But then I also think, for all we know, they are doing all those things. They are cr- creating a path. There are arrows on the floor. They have rehearsed it with him. Maybe they're waving to him off screen. Over here, walk this way. I mean, we don't know that. She just assumes that the little people have let us down. Just like the guy that said it was construction workers that left cocaine at the White House. It's always the little guy, right? It's never the people in authority or responsibility. It's never the people of privilege. No, we are always being effed over by you and me, the little guy, letting us down. So it's not that Biden is 80, that's causing all this. It's because his staff is so bad, says Mika Brzezinski. All right, let's listen to the rest of it. And I blame the staff for that. I mean, Mm. these are the things that are going to hurt him. These are things that are going to be played on a loop. Okay? Let him do his job. Let Mm. him do his speeches. Let him work on policy. Let him do his connections in Congress, Mm. unlike any president that we've seen, uh, I, I don't know, since Clinton. But my God, Make sure, you know, your Secret Service, you're his staff, that you were there and you're telling him what's next. And it's not because, don't, don't take this as, oh, mm. he can't even get from one place to another. Mm. When you're busy and you're on stage, and we've been on stage, right. mm. I've done speeches, and I'm so nervous, I'm doing the speech, I'm trying to get it right, and when it's done, I don't know which way to go, and I'm looking <laughs> for direction. So do a better job, because you can't have these video images so of the he's president. not really worried about Joe Biden. Apparently no one is. No one's actually worried about the man. She's worried that if this looks bad, their party might lose. That's sad, isn't it, when you think about it? Like, she's not saying, I'm worried this man will hurt himself. I'm worried that he'll take a tumble. I'm worried that he'll have a life-changing fall. No. If his staff doesn't get their act together, Mika might not like the outcome of the next election. That's, that is sad. That is something. Boy, they really show you who they are. But she's all worked up about it. While I was listening to her rant and rave about Biden's staff, I was thinking, what must it be like to be on Mika's staff? And I think Joe is on Mika's staff, if you know what I mean. Anyway, uh, the president is supposedly not attending the NATO dinner tonight. Uh, this is what they were saying earlier. I don't know if this has changed in the last hour or so, but they were saying this morning that he would not be at the dinner tonight with other NATO leaders. And when asked why, uh, the answer was uh, he has uh, had four full days of official business and is preparing for a big speech tomorrow. And so he's skipping the dinner at the summit tonight. And I'm just going to leave that there. I'm not, th- that needs no comment from me. He, he's going to skip the dinner. He's going to be in bed early because he has a speech to give tomorrow, which, by the way, they're all giving a speech tomorrow. Okay. All right. Uh, there's a uh, new survey out from YouGov about Bud Light. 
uh, reveals the decline in Bud Light's ranking, casting it below competitors like Pabst Blue Ribbon, Miller Genuine Draft, Miller Light. And this is in turn, uh, th- this decline in market share and popularity is in turn now leading to Anheuser-Busch closing two bottling plants uh, that were making uh, Bud Light. So they're continuing to launch new summer ad campaigns. They are on bended knee trying to get people to come back. But the other half of that story is this is now affecting working people. And do you see the pattern here? Somebody in the E-suite at Anheuser-Busch made a decision that was crazy or crazy like a fox or intentional or just stupid. You take your pick. I've told you, I don't think they're stupid. I don't think they blundered into this. I really think they thought you'd keep drinking it and more people would drink it. I really think they think there's a lot of Dylan Mulvaney's out there that would start quaffing Bud Light. I really think that. I think they thought this was a a, a no-risk thing. We're going to keep all of our current customers because they won't even know who Dylan Mulvaney is or care. But we're going to get some new people. We're going to we're going to you know plow some new ground. And of course, it didn't work. But who's paying? Who's paying? Is anyone in the E-suite paying? Is anyone, you know, is anyone hurting from this? No, the, the people that work in the plants, the people that make it, the people that bottle it are losing their jobs. It, I'm telling you, when it comes to the left and wokeness, it always falls on the shoulders of the people the left claims to be championing. You're the one that's going to do all the heavy lifting on the climate. You're the one that's going to do all the heavy lifting on forgiving student loans. You're going to be the one that does all the heavy lifting in all the wars they want to get us into. You're going to be the one that does all the heavy lifting as they wreck iconic brands. I mean, Bud Light was a no-brainer business. It's not that great a beer, but if they had just played their cards right, they could have sold it, you know, ad infinitum. But, But they didn't. And the people who will pay are people that make an hourly wage and people that put gloves on to go to work and people that drive trucks. And, yeah, that's, that's, that's their M.O. And, uh, and there'll be no, like, uh, oh, we're going we're gonna to make it up to you. <laughs> we apologize. We're, I mean, that would, you know, that would be a great ad campaign. I just thought of this. A really great ad campaign right now for Bud Light would be, hey, we just want to let everybody know we are not going to lay off a single employee no matter how low our sales go, we're going to find a way to retain these people. These are the people that made our brand. These are the people that, that have done the hard work over the years. They've put in the sweat and the effort. We couldn't have done it without them. And as we climb back to uh, better days and bigger sales, we're going, to, we're going to promise, we're going to pledge that everybody at Anheuser-Busch gets to keep their job. That would be a pretty good ad campaign, at least better than anything they've run uh, since Dylan. Did anybody watch, I'm just curious, um, did anybody watch the All-Star game last night, the baseball All-Star game? There was nothing, nothing else happening in the sports world, so I decided to watch it. I like baseball, but I, I normally don't watch the All-Star game. And it was really, it was a good game. It was very enjoyable. And I'll tell you, there was two things I really liked. I'm curious to know if anybody else liked these things. First of all, it is so nice now to watch baseball on Fox and not have Joe Buck there. Oh, I feel like I got out of prison. And this guy they have... Um, I can't think of his name. Uh, God, I always forget his name. He's really good. He's the he's the replacement for Joe Buck. Um, I think his name is Kelly, something Kelly. 
Um, he's great, and the, 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 the commentating was great. So that was nice. But the thing I thought was very cool, and I don't know, you can tell me if I've just been out of the loop and they've been doing this for a while. I had never seen this before. Because it was the All-Star game, and it's not a game that counts, and it's, you know, the, the players are playing for fun. They had uh, select players throughout the game with uh, a headset on, you know, a little earpiece, and the announcers were interviewing them like while they were on the field of play, like they're talking to the center fielder while he's out there waiting for the next uh, fly ball. And they talk to the pitcher while he's on the mound. And they talk, They were talking to the infielders. And, I mean, it was you couldn't do that during a regular season game because you'd, you'd, be, you'd be interfering with the, you know, hey, come on, we've got to concentrate, we've got to win this game. But, I mean, there's no ramifications. You're just playing for fun and pride and stuff when you're playing in the All-Star game. So I really liked that. I thought that was a lot of gimmicks, kind of our turnoffs, but I, that was interesting to me. And to hear the, the uh, interplay and to hear the players talking – to the announcers and answering questions and um, even talking with one another. There were a couple of outfielders that were kibitzing with one another. I just thought it was a great idea and didn't know if anybody else noticed that. Uh, here's a um, survey from Brown University, Ivy League school, Brown University, and the Brown Daily Herald, which is the student newspaper. It says 38% of Brown University students identify as LGBTQ+. Thirty-eight percent. Do you believe that? I'm not saying do you believe the report. Do you believe that two out of five of them are LGBTQ? I mean, that's exponentially higher than the highest estimates for the general population. Even if you allow for, well, they're, they're young people, and even if you allow for, well, they're at a very liberal Ivy League school. You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like a fad to me. And I'm not trying to offend anybody, and I'm not saying that if you're gay, you're just, you know, <laughs> you're just pretending or you're just, it's a fad. I- I'm saying that high a percentage beggars belief. There, there simply is no other way for me to hear that Assuming that those are the numbers that the survey revealed, that's the answers that were given, there's no other way for me to hear that than a kind of, you know, wanting to belong Me Tooism. And you might say, well, what's the point? I mean, so what do you care? Well, here's the point. Here's the point. If we are going to talk about gay rights, and if we're going to talk about... Um, litigating them, and I believe that gay rights are just human rights, and human rights apply to everyone. I don't think you get special rights because of who you love or how you feel about the opposite sex or the same sex. You should have you should have the same rights I do, and I should have the same rights as she does and he does and that person over there. But um, if we're going to start to ta- if we're going to start dividing people into camps and preferencing groups, doesn't this show that, in fact, that is a meaningless division? Like, if you were to track this population of students, I don't think anybody will do this, but if you did, will in, in 10 years or 20 years, will 40% of them be, still be gay? I don't think so. I don't think so. Because I don't think that really is true even now. And then the other thing it makes you wonder about is just how much, 
um, exhortation uh, or or brainwashing or social pressure must there be to get that kind of a response rate? I mean, that's incredible. It's mean, <laughs> just completely out of bounds. That that's the kind of number that you've got to go back to the drawing board with. But that's that's what the Brown. Daily uh, Herald says 38% of students at the university identify as LGBTQ+. Our next guest has been uh, with us many times. I read him every day, uh, and he's on a website that you really should try to check out every day, hotair.com. He makes a lot of sense. Ed Morrissey, welcome back to the show. Good afternoon. Well, thank you for uh, having me back on. Um, i got so many things I want to... I, that I always save up and want to get into uh, with you. But I just saw this one a few minutes ago. I was really intrigued by this. Did you see what um, what Doug Burgum is doing to try to get donations? <laughs> this is this yeah, is so I, cool. I mean, if, you, if, you, if you donate a $1, you get a $20 gift card? <laughs> it's um, because this is, I assume this is because the Republicans, the Republican Party, in order to be on the debate stage next month, they have all these hurdles you got to clear, and I think one of them is you have to have X, X number of, uh, you know, individual donors. 40, it's not just the amount of you money you 40, raise, 000. but it's okay. So you got to have forty thousand. So a guy like Doug, I don't know that there are forty thousand people in the world that know who Doug Burgum is, but but he's thinking, well, if I can just get the donations, I can get on that stage, and I'm a smart guy, and that might help me to be on that stage. And I think he's right about that. So what he's saying is, if you donate a dollar you'll get a $20 gift card. This is going to be good for the first 50,000 people who do it. So that's a lot of money, although this guy has it. And um, what do you think? I mean, I I guess he's playing their game, right? He is. I mean, this is sort of a lesson in perverse incentives, right? I mean, that's I, I'm, just, I'm not sure that you can do that in terms of um, – uh, election spending. I think it's a it's an interesting area for the FEC to sort of take a look at and see what the legality of this is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy is doing something. Um, it's it's not quite the same thing, but I think it's similar. Where where he's paying people to uh, recruit other people, and he's basically giving them a ten percent commission. I saw that. Yeah, we talked about that yesterday. He's probably, I think he's trying to make it like a side gig, that if you're one of his f- fundraisers, you have like a side gig. Yeah, yeah. And that, to me, is sort of in a gray area as well. Um, I mean, It is frustrating, though, that it is frustrating, yeah. though, is it not, Ed, that, I mean, if, if you're not one of the top, you know, people, these these big donors just won't even look at you. And and it, and it's a shame because when people hear a Tim Scott, when they hear a Doug Burgum, they like what they hear. But the chances are most people will never hear it. Well, I think the difference here is that Tim Scott has had a national profile for a while, so he's already attracting donors. Nikki Haley has had a uh, a national profile for a while, so she's already attracting donors. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy can really fund himself, and for, to a certain extent, so can Burgum. Uh, but Bergam has never tried to build a national profile before running mm-hmm. for president, and I think that that's what the issue is, right? He's never made himself available for that type of mm-hmm. um, politicking. And, you know, he's a governor of North Dakota, so, I mean, it's not like he's some, you know, oddball, some, some you know, fringe kind of guy. 
So he's had an opportunity to try to make himself into a national figure. He has probably calculated until now that it was smarter in North Dakota politics to, you know, keep your nose to the local grindstone mm-hmm. rather mm-hmm. than do what Christy Noem was doing, you know, over the last couple of years and making herself, uh, her national profile more important than her in-state profile. And that was probably a smart decision on mm-hmm. Burgum's, in Burgum's choice for what he was doing in North Dakota, but that comes at a cost, and that cost is mm. just simply a lack of um, a lack of visibility and donors. Uh, and he got in late too. I mean, if he decided that he wanted to run for president in in say January or February, he probably would have had a lot more room to start building that. Until, you know, to the point where we're getting up to close to well, a uh, right. I guess there's two things we're really talking about. We're right. talking about raising money, but we're also talking about getting on that debate stage. I mean, there's. There's right. um, there's so much value in that divorced from whatever money you raise, uh, because you could have that moment, you know, that that breakthrough, soundbite, viral moment right. that all of a sudden you're in the top three. You wrote a piece oh. at Hot Air a couple of days ago, headlined "Why All the DeSantis Panic," and I, one of the things I like about you Ed, is you're very even-handed about Trump and DeSantis, and you call everybody out. Um, the, the, the knock on DeSantis right now is he's failing. This has been, this has been a nightmare. It's been a train wreck. What, what, what's going on here? Nothing is going on. That was what I was pointing out is that this is exactly the race that we thought we were going to have. Mm-hmm. If Trump was running, you're going to have two lanes. You're going to have the Trump lane for people who want to go back to another term of Trump because they liked the direction that the party was going in at that point in time, mm-hmm. or people who wanted to change directions, and then everybody else who got in other than Trump would really be competing in that lane. And we assumed that Ron DeSantis was pretty much going to dominate that lane. And if you take a look at the national polling, and probably even more so with state polling, I mean, if you look at state-by-state polling, this is even more pronounced. Ron DeSantis is dominating the not-Trump lane. Mm-hmm. Um, Nobody else is is getting any sort of purchase whatsoever, and people have been in that people in that lane have been there longer than Ron DeSantis has. Nikki Haley announced early. Mike Pence announced early. Um, Tim Scott announced just about the same time that um, that Ron DeSantis did. I think they were just within a couple of days of each other. Uh, Chris Christie announced later. Got a lot of media about announcing, saying he was going to take on Trump, and he's the guy to fight Trump, and he's the guy to prosecute the case against Trump, and he isn't registering hardly at all. He's in the margin of yeah. error. He's in the yeah. he's in the statistical noise. So this isn't going to change. the 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 basic choice in the Republican primary is which direction do you want the party to go? Do you want to go back to Trump, or do you want to take a, a change of direction? And the people who have to make that decision, the Republican primary voters don't have to actually make that decision right now. They can make that decision down the road. And so right now, they're pretty much staying in their current lane. The people who want to change the direction mm-hmm. are lining up, you know, half of them are lining up behind DeSantis. The other half are spread out among the other candidates. And Trump is obviously the Trump lane, and that's about half the party. I feel like the uh, media under-reports, I, I feel like the media under-reports how much um, overlap there is with regular people. I'm not talking about commentators, but... Uh, people I talk to, they prefer one over the other, but they're not completely closed off to the other one, most of them. Right, and I agree. And I think that that's the, that's the feeling I get from people who comment, you know, our, our members that comment at Hot Air, too, is that uh, they, they may lean in direction or the other, change direction, stay, you know, stay the course, uh, 
and then the people who want to change direction may have some preferences in there, but they're waiting to see how the debates go, what happens to the candidates uh, over the next several months, and, and there's a lot of stuff uh, that is you know, hanging on Trump right now, including a federal indictment, federal criminal indictment, and a potential state criminal indictment coming up in Georgia next month. And so that's got to factor into it as well. But they're not really going to be – they don't need to make this decision until really the first of yeah. the year. Yeah. And I think they're, they're just waiting and seeing, and there's no rush um, to to solidify yeah. their choice, except for the people who are very passionate. And those people may be difficult to budge. And that's – you know, DeSantis is – DeSantis has two ways of going here, and, and, and probably can do both at the same time, I would assume, which is, A, to convince people that it, this is the time to change directions, and B, to build a ground game that allows him to get that message out in a sort of a personal uh, connection basis that will, be, um, that will actually effectuate that, uh, that decision process. I know he's doing the second. They're spending mm-hmm. a ton of money on ground game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, you still have to be a good candidate, and you still have to you still have to win that argument. So, and there's plenty of time to see. We're we're forty now, forty two days away from the first debate. I mean, we just yeah. really haven't even started yet. I also I do think some of the media spin that the DeSantis uh, candidacy has cratered and it's over, and uh, he wasn't uh, this is too big for him is because in fact many of them really prefer the matchup to Trump. Uh, to the matchup to DeSantis. Uh, on the other side, with uh, I want to ask you about RFK Jr. I mean, there are people, the other yeah. day, there were people pushing him as Trump's running mate. Um, is he worthy of the love he's getting from conservatives? No. <laughs> you know, RFK Jr., I, I will say this. I think RFK Jr. has a really good argument on, on uh, censorship because he's been censored. And I think that there's obviously some sympathy for them, for him, for that, because he's gotten caught up in the same um, Big Brother um, Ministry of Truth stuff that Republicans have been and conservatives have been caught up in for the last couple of years. And that's totally understandable. But RFK Jr. is a hard left guy. He is not necessarily your best free, sp- free speech friend. He's taken a lot of fringe lefty positions. Um, I think he's very um, sincere about those, and I think he's, uh, you know, he's a pretty sharp guy in, ter- in terms of articulating those views. But this is not a guy who is is a conservo populist in the sense that Donald Trump is. And the idea that you're going to put him on a Republican ticket, I wouldn't even put him on a no labels ticket. I think he's just mm. too far left for that. Speaking of no labels, I see where Joe Manchin's going to do one of their events. And he's way behind in his West Virginia Senate race. Is he running for president because he basically has nothing else he can do? Well, I'm not sure he's going to even run for Senate. He hasn't actually decided. I think it's more likely that he's either going to run for governor or just simply retire and hope to catch on in a um, administration oh, okay. position in the next in the next you know administration, regardless of who wins it. Uh, but I think what he's doing right now is he has a few things still left that he wants to be able to do over the next couple of years if he's planning to run for governor to um, to make West Virginians think a little bit more highly of him than they do at the moment. And I think what the no labels footsie playing is is a way to gain leverage and get the mm. White House to to fork over the yeah. policy you know the policy demands he has in order to strengthen his position back home. There you go. Um, I got to ask you about this. We're we're running low here on time, I know, but um, 
we talked about this on the show yesterday. Portuguese bishop, cardinal designate of the Catholic Church, the head of World Youth Day, gives an interview. World Youth Day is coming up in a couple of weeks. He says, quote, We don't want to convert young people to Christ or to the Catholic Church or anything like that at all. What does that mean? I have no idea, Jack. I mean, the the, the Catholic Church... You saw the story, though, right? I mean, it's it's, it's mind-boggling. I did. I mean, the Great Commission still applied, right? The end of the end of the Gospel of Matthew, when Christ says, you know, go out and make disciples of all nations, that still applies. That's still something we're supposed to be doing. Now, I understand that they want to be seen as ecumenical, that they want to be seen as non-threatening, they want to be seen as, you know, people of the world. That's the problem. <laughs> We're not supposed to be people of the world. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to be people in the world, but people mm-hmm. of the kingdom of God. And, and, and I mean, if you're Catholic, and I'm, just, I'm saying this as a Catholic, mm-hmm. that uh, you're supposed to be professing the word of God to convert people so that they can be saved. That's the whole purpose of the Catholic Church. So, I mean, I, at best, I'm hoping that this is some sort of mistranslation, but I'm... I, I don't I'm think it... Sure I don't think it... I, I understand when people say, you know, it's important for people to come to Christ no matter how they come. I, I understand that um, to a point. But if you're the Catholic Church and you stand for anything, wouldn't it be that, hey, we we are the path? You know, come be with us. Come... Follow yeah. us, join us. I mean, what is the what is the point of the whole thing if you're going to say this? Right, and I think it's I think there's a difference here because I think you're right. I think there's a thing. Well, we don't care how people come to Christ as long as they come to Christ. And, I mean, that's a defensible position. I'm not necessarily sure I'd agree with it as a Catholic, but I it's still a defensible uh, position. But that's not what he's saying here. He says we don't want to convert the young people right. to Christ or to the Catholic Church or anything like that at all. It's like anything what, like that at what all. What do you think your job is? Yeah. What do you think your job is? That's your job. <laughs> I, I, it's. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad that 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 it strikes you that way because again, it, it was. I kept thinking about it. Like, am I misunderstanding this? Am I? And I don't think it's mistranslated. It was reported by Catholic News Agency. They're not exactly anti-Catholic. Right. So I, I I believe this is what the man said. This is a man the Pope has recognized as a future prince of the Church. I believe they say that Francis has now appointed a majority of the cardinals who will elect his replacement. So this is troubling, right. I think. It is troubling. And and by the way, the Catholic News Agency is a very reliable uh, source. I, we complain a lot that the uh, mainstream media misinterprets Pope Francis's statements, and they do. Uh, but CNA is not part of that. CNA is actually right. very, very good at getting this right. So that's the reason why I... I was sort of laughing, saying, well, I'm hoping that this is a mistranslation, but I'm pretty sure it's not. Um, so, yes, I mean, I think we can rely on this on this report as the as, as the truth and then shake yep. our heads and say, this is not what this person's job is supposed to be. This person's no. job is to make Christ come alive and to convert people to Christ. Now, I'm not saying at the point of a sword, I'm not saying that right. we should lock people in rooms, but... But by proclaiming the gospel, we are supposed to be we're supposed to be making a compelling case for people to um, put God's word in their yeah. heart and accept Christ. Be, be earnest I mean, and and sound like you and sound like you're on fire uh, about it, uh, not uh, that you're discouraging it. Uh, Ed, we're out of time. I love having you. Thank you for for agreeing to come on. You should read him at hotair.com. Ed Morrissey. Ed, thank you. Thank you so much, sir. You know, we're going to talk to a, a guest this half hour. 
who's going to straighten out for us uh, threads. So Meta, Mark Zuckerberg's company, has created threads, the competition to Twitter. And it looks like, from my vantage point, this is basically Twitter for liberals who are all appalled at Elon Musk and uh, what's happening with Twitter, and it's they're they're not uh, taking down you know they're not taking down disinformation or they're not taking down the right disinformation. So anyway, um, we're going to talk to him about that. Do you know who um, Steve Lukather is? Does that name ring a bell? Steve Lukather was one of the I think he was the founding member, in fact, of the band Toto. Had a number of hits in the seventies and eighties, like. Africa and Rosanna. Um, but he's also a big-time musician. He's, he's, he's played on a lot of Michael Jackson records. He's written music for all kinds of other people. He's, Toto and the members of Toto are all people that played in other bands. So he's really like kind of, you know, I would say rock royalty, Steve Lukather. Um, he went on this uh, rant... Um, about the music business, and I can't even read all of it to you, but he was talking about how people listen to music nowadays uh, using Spotify and things like it, and uh, presuming that the artists get paid. And he says, I-, I want you to know I'm not seeing any money, and I have a lot of stuff out there from over 40 years of making records. Um, have you done the breakdown, he asks, on what an artist gets per tune on iTunes? It's pitiful. Now, if you're with a label, it's even worse because they take a huge share of it. It's pennies. He says, too many people now can make records. No catalog artists are made these days. One-hit wonders galore. Sad, really. Record companies don't give budgets like the old days when the great records are made because that costs money. They want to make money for nothing and own you for life and a piece of everything an artist does. You can sell a million and still owe them. My 25-year-old son has friends who have platinum records living in one-room studio apartments broke. Of course, back then, record companies cared about music and nurturing artists for a long-term career and long-term money. Sure, it got them the lion's share, but then they invested, believed, and promoted it so there was some justification. Now it's beats and how many Facebook hits and YouTube hits you get, all of which either make no money or short-term dog bleep money with no real way to account for it. What the F? People want to be famous, not good. That's my favorite line in this whole thing. People want to be famous, not good. It's too easy to play pretend pop star now with all the fakery and auto-tune, cut and paste, Most young people don't know how to play a song from top to bottom in a studio in tune and in time. I'm in the studios all the time, Steve Lukather writes. I hear the stories from producers and engineers. No one cares uh, that so-and-so sold a bleep load of records if they can't sing or play. He calls them McRecords. Gone are the days of loving, dissecting, discussing the inner workings of an album sitting in silence while it plays, reading the liner notes, looking at the pictures, imagining what a magic place it must be to make such music. Gone, he says. When we were kids, 
And yes, I will be 108 this year, he writes. There were only a handful of artists, and they were great because they had to be. You could choose not to like some of them, but none of them sounded alike. Now we live in a McWorld that moves way too fast. Even the drugs suck. I mean, when I was young and got high, I never got naked foaming at the mouth and tried to eat off someone's face. <laughs> so he's, he's, he's just angry at the state of things. And I know some people will hear that and go, well, you know, he, your career, you had your career and it's in the past and you don't like the way things are done or you, maybe you don't get the way things are done. But see, it sounds like he does get the way things are done now. He doesn't sound like an old man that, that didn't keep up. He's, he's rattling off. Uh, he knows about Spotify, and uh, he understands the model. His point, and I think you also have to give him some credit, because um, he could just enjoy his wealth. I mean, wh- why, why even say this stuff out loud? He could say it privately or not say it at all. I, I think he, he gets some credit, because what he is actually saying is what we have replaced the old model with is not better it's just new not everything that's new is better not everything that's new is worse and when you're my age or steve lukather's age you have to be careful not to sound like every modern invention is a setback or is you know uh crude or whatever but I, I think he's actually making a point. I was I was really struck by the the part where he said, "Listening, sitting in a room, listening to an album." You and I did that. We put on a record. We listened to it. We didn't pick up the needle once. We imagined what it must have been like to play on it or we put images with the lyrics or the words or we imagined love songs and we imagined the people we were in love with at the time or or we read the liner notes and we found out oh i didn't realize that so and so played the harmonica on this song or whatever it is that all that stuff i think is kind of lost and the people that have that are not getting it don't know they're missing it because they've never known it does that make sense and then the, the thing he said uh which i think is just a this is a quote that's going to stay with me, is the whole idea that we are now more interested, let me scroll down to it, because I think it's such a great, it's such a great um, uh, quote. Uh, it's more, people want to be famous, not good. I mean, I know young musicians that still work at their craft and practice, and I don't want to, I don't want to generalize and say this is true of everybody, because it's not. But we do live in a world now where being famous is an accomplishment in itself. But at one time, you were famous for an accomplishment. So you had done something. You had created something. And that that was what made you famous. There are people today that are, we call them influencers and stuff. I don't know what they've done. I'm not sure they've actually done anything. Except that a lot of people know who they are. And that's what he's lamenting. This looks like one of the rare things that may have lived up to its hype. The launch of Threads uh, by Mark Zuckerberg's Meta. This is the platform that uh, is either going to compete with Twitter or some people say kill it. Uh, We're going to talk about that with our next guest right now in the KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker line, Adam Raziri. 
is a co-founder and chief marketing officer at a digital media firm in Dallas called Agency Partner Interactive. And Adam, thank you for coming on. Good afternoon. Hey, Jack. Great to be with you. So uh, Twitter was the inventor or the pioneer of this kind of uh, site or social media platform. Um, Is Threads basically a response to Elon Musk's uh, changes, the things he changed on Twitter? Is that is that why we have threads? You know, that, that's an interesting question. I, you know, I will have to say that this is a this, – this style of social media platform being a microblog is one that uh, is actually able to be developed for a fairly low cost of investment, uh, mainly because there's already some open source technology that's available on the market for – light customization that allows you to create kind of a, a light version of Twitter, if you will. So mm-hmm. this thing doesn't cost the $20 billion that the failed metaverse concept mm-hmm. cost Zuckerberg. Uh, th- you know, this thing costs way less than that. And so I think he's basically just trying to create an additional marketing asset for generating more advertising revenue. But the thing is, is he's, he's failing to understand that the online community of those who actually use Instagram is very different from a community that, is on Twitter, a, a community of people who are sharing thoughts and commentary on real-time events versus Instagram, where you have people who are sharing curated, edited content that is not real-time. And so basically with Threads, Threads kind of attaches this real-time sort of online social concept to Instagram itself. And, and there's, there's really, I, I think, a failure of recognition that the users are not the same. So, you know, yes, it's true that Threads already has racked up over 100 million signups really quickly, but that shouldn't be all that surprising given that the meta platforms overall have about mm. 4 billion users total. So 100 million is not that significant. And, and, and frankly, too, the engagement metrics are the most important. It's one thing to actually onboard the application. It's a, it's a very different thing to actually use it time and time again. Mm. And so I think they're going to have a real problem with engagement moving forward as we're seeing Twitter on the other side of the fence growing to 535 million monetizable monthly active users, uh, actually boosting their engagement metrics. They actually hit a four-month uh, historical record uh, just this, this week, actually. So, you know, I think, I think it's a very different sort of social reality that these two companies are sort of trying to say is apples to apples, when in mm. reality it's really not an apples to apples comparison. Uh, yeah, I've heard some people kind of s- simply uh, describe threads as Twitter for liberals. But explain, <laughs> for folks that may not know, explain the, the relationship between your Instagram account and threads. Because I heard that you, it was kind of like if you if you uh, deleted threads, you would delete your Instagram as well. Is that true? That's exactly right. The only way to get rid of threads if you don't like it is to literally delete your Instagram account and then restart the, the onboarding process. Zuckerberg's really found a way to, to keep people captive to a platform that they might not even like. Uh, you know, so it's, it's, it's kind, of, um, kind of unfair if you think about it, but it's also, at the end of the day, it doesn't really create for a very good user experience. Uh, you know, but that, that, that's how things are right now. These app companies, whenever you release a new product to the market, it's never done. It's always a work in progress. There are mm. always going to be bugs that have to be solved. And sometimes it's not a bug. It's just a feature or a functionality sort of thing. So in the case of threads, I think that there's a little bit of a desire to keep people captive on this so that they can try and prove success to the shareholders when it comes time for those earnings calls. Mm. But also, this is a sales tool as well, right? They want to sell 
the rea- or the idea that this is a viable place for companies to come and invest and, and, and invest advertising dollars uh, so that they can try and, and you know avoid the reality that they experienced earlier in the year when they had two rounds of laying off 10,000 people in each round, right? 20,000 people to lay off is quite a bit. Uh, you know, piggybacking on top of the, the $20 billion burned on the metaverse, um, and obviously, too, some, some pretty rough headlines specific to internal research at Meta saying that uh, Instagram is not good for the, the mental health of teenage girls and, mm-hmm. and young folks in general, right? So they're, they're really trying to kind of try and refocus where the market's looking. And, you know, there have been a rough sequence of headlines kind of hitting the Meta uh, portfolio of, of businesses. Uh, and Twitter over here, though, is doing things that are pretty innovative and different. They've uh, got a guy like Elon Musk who creates reusable rockets trying to refine the product. And now a, a pretty well-known business executive, Linda Yaccarino, taking over as CEO. Uh, I think I think really Twitter has a lot more going for it than Threads, uh, definitely both in the short term and the long term. Mm. Well, one thing I've noticed about Musk is he seems to be consciously working against that kind of um, evil villain CEO uh, image that th- th- these companies are starting to scare people with the power they have, with the uh, yeah. obviously with the influence as you mentioned on young people, the addictive quality of the platforms, the the all the weird uh, collusion we're learning about with uh, the federal government. Um, so Musk seems like he's whether it's image or reality, he's trying to project himself like I'm I'm the uh, I'm the opposite of that. Um, what do you like about uh, Twitter, what makes you say you think Twitter is in pretty good shape? What has he done that, as a digital media guy, you'd like to look of? Yeah, so the first thing that he did was he, he very quickly improved the financial health of the business simply by cutting a lot of fat from the business model as it, as it was. I mean, their their office space, the way the org chart was, was constructed was just totally wrong. It was totally heavy. And he, he basically he bought a business that was unprofitable for eight out of the past ten years, and so he was like, he basically realized, okay, well, all he has to do this year is either break even at zero dollars as a loss and gain, or just make a single dollar to show, obviously, financial success. So he's already tried to make some strong moves to improve the cost structure of the company, while at the same time, I think he's 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 intelligently removed himself from the CEO role. He still owns the business; he's the boss of the CEO, right? At the end of the day, but he's now the CTO of the company, and he's able to do what he does best, which is focus on innovating the product and creating the next reality of Twitter while on the, on the sidelines or on the side concurrently, Linda Yaccarino is focusing on bringing back the ad revenue that the company lost um, mm-hmm. and focusing on building out, building out partnerships and really doing what she does as a, as a sales leader, right? She is the CEO, but she really is the, the chief salesperson of the company. And that really allows Elon to focus on the fun yeah. stuff, which is literally building cool products. You mentioned that what's grabbing the headlines right now about threads is all the signups, but that down the road we need to see if there's engagement, in other words, continued uh, usage. How long do you think it will take for us to know that that is happening in a way that's competitive with Twitter? Yeah, that's a great question. So fortunately for us, uh, this is a you know Meta is a public company, so uh, it's a lot easier to access their information than it is that of a private company like Twitter. Uh, so, you know, we're going to be able to, with as much data as we have on the Internet and all the tools that we have that allow us to track metrics online, uh, we're going to know very quickly within a period of a week or two to three weeks or so just what engagement looks like. But we really want to start to track uh, monthly engagement. What does the weekly and monthly trend pattern look like? And if we see an uptrend or a downtrend, that's going to be pretty indicative after people are 
you know, kind of they've been onboarded onto the application, they've created their profile, and then what's next, right? We want to we want to answer the question of what's next, and the data over the next few weeks and over the next couple of months will mm-hmm. really be very very clear. Adam Rosari, the co-founder of Agency Partner Interactive, a digital marketing company out of Dallas with us on KTSA. And uh, great to have you. Hope you'll come back again, and, and thanks for the time today. Hey, thank you. Stay cool. The summer wind came blowing in from across the sea. It lingered there to touch your hair. Walk with me All summer long We sang a song And then we strolled That golden sand Two sweethearts And the summer wind I posted the Steve Lukather uh, rant. It was on Facebook, and I, I reposted it on the Jack Riccardi page if you want to check that out. Let me know what you think. Um, I, he doesn't seem like I know I, I know I sound like an old, you know, <laughs> like a crusty old man sometimes. I know. You don't have to tell me. You do anyway, but you don't have to. Uh, he doesn't sound that way to me. He sounds like he, he knows what's going on in the music world today. And he's part of what it used to be, and he's just letting you know, hey, you know what? Um, this was better. It was better for you, the fan, the listener, and it was better for us, the artist, the creator. So, Geraldine Ferraro, 39 years ago today, was selected as the running mate for Democratic presidential nominee Walter Mondale, who would go on to a historic landslide defeat against President Reagan running for re-election. But Walter Mondale... Uh, in selecting Geraldine Ferraro, who was a congresswoman from New York State, uh, made history. This was the first time a woman had been chosen for a national ticket. And we would subsequently have, uh, you know, this happen a couple more times. We would ultimately wind up with the current woman, Vice President Kamala Harris. But I think Geraldine Ferraro might have been the birth of identity politics. Because everyone knew at the time that he chose her in order to have the the gesture of choosing a woman. It was um, ballyhooed and played up that way. Um, It was also a kind of um, slapped together choice. Walter Mondale was not a very exciting guy. He was was a good person, but he was not an exciting uh, candidate. Very dull, very... Uh, kind of flat, and uh, he'd been Carter's vice president, and, and he was basically running a, a suicide mission against Reagan. There was almost no chance of, of defeating Reagan in 1984, so Fritz Mondale gets this chance, and, and he he is, of course, he's always wanted to run for president, so he runs, and then he is persuaded, or they come up with this idea, well, you know what might be a game-changer, a woman running mate, but then they pick a woman who they haven't really done good background checks on, and it turns out her husband is a crook and there's some financial dealings. And the, the moral of the story is, uh, and both of these people are, are, no longer, uh, are no longer with us, God rest their souls, but um, the moral of the story is that Geraldine Ferraro was an identity politics choice. We didn't even have that term in 1984. 
But you recognize that now. You see it all the time. You see it in the current vice president. It, there may be history being made, and people can say what they want, but everyone knows it was an identity politics move. It was strategic. It was calculated. And no one thought Geraldine Ferraro was uniquely qualified or was somebody that absolutely should be president someday. She was just somebody that checked the right boxes and, as it turns out, didn't even check all of them. 210-599-5555. Speaking of gender, uh, CNN is in trouble. If I had asked you, if we had done like a betting pool, which network will misgender Dylan Mulvaney, I don't think too many people would have put their money on the CNN square, but that's where it happened. I mean, even Fox News minds their P's and Q's when it comes to Dylan Mulvaney. But anyway, CNN under fire for a segment on the culture war in which correspondent Ryan Young misgenders the former Bud Light influencer. This is what it sounded like, cut number five. We, we went to Nashville. We even talked to a bar in Chicago. One bar was telling us basically they're, re, they're not going to serve it because they don't like the way Dylan Mulvaney was treated after this whole controversy started. He, of course, is the transgender uh, person they were going to uh, uh, sponsor and go along with with Bud Light. They didn't like how Bud Light didn't stand by him after all this. Mm, there's, a, there's a he and a him in there. So then... They get one of the anchors to um, read an apology. This is going to be the most, I don't know, I, I, what's the word? Um, unenthusiastic, rote-sounding apology you have ever heard in your life for anything. Cut number six. Before we wrap up today, we do want to make an important note. Yesterday in a segment about transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney, who was featured in Bud Light's recent campaign, she was mistakenly referred to by the wrong pronoun. And CNN aims to honor individuals' ways of identifying themselves, and we apologize for that error. I've heard hostage tapes that had more animation than that, but okay. Do you know who Megan Rapinoe is, the star of the U.S. women's soccer team? Uh, Megan Rapinoe, in a uh, cover story for Time magazine, is uh, attacking comedian Dave Chappelle and others, uh, singling out Martina Navratilova and ESPN's Sage Steele, because these are all people that have spoken up about transgender uh, women playing in women's sports. I don't want to mince words about it, Rapinoe said. Dave Chappelle makes jokes about trans people. It directly leads to violence, whether it's verbal or otherwise, against trans people. She also says in the interview that um, she would have no problem accepting a transgender woman on the U.S. national women's soccer team. I'll deal with that in a minute, but... Correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't Dave Chappelle the victim of an attack? Wasn't Dave Chappelle? I, I don't remember exactly when, but I seem to recall that Dave Chappelle was attacked either on stage or at a club. And so I find it interesting that you, if you oppose 
this transgender ideology or if you oppose biological men playing women's sports, being in women's locker rooms, um, you are to blame for violence because it seems like the violence is coming the other way, is going the other way. I also think it's interesting, I, I never thought I'd live to see the day when a white liberal woman would be able to call out a black comic and say, you know what, he's the problem. You, you, have to, you have to appreciate the moment we're in here. The black rights movement used to be untouchable to the left, just like the women's rights movement. You couldn't, they were its staunchest defenders. No one would outflank them on it. They were there. They were there for the fight. They were there for the battle. We've got your back. And we're watching right before our eyes. You're living through these times. We're watching the left completely drop women pretend they literally pretending they don't know what a woman is <laughs> i mean you know sounds hyperbolic and now we're calling out the black comedian he's the problem he's the problem now about her saying she would welcome a woman uh, excuse me welcome a guy on the women's soccer team i'm not buying it i just don't believe it do you i think she can say that I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of soccer but i think she can say that because she knows that will not happen in fact i don't believe for a minute that she would want a dude on that team i, I just don't buy it and you can say stuff like this when you know you won't have to actually you know write the check tell me what you think 210-599-5555 uh the uh i guess you could say the diversity and equity uh movement is coming for the lgb crowd now this is this is interesting what comes around goes around a um a clothing optional florida resort that caters to gay and bisexual men must open all areas to women according to a ruling last week by a judge on the florida commission on human relations um this is a uh place in Key West. It's a company that owns two nude resorts, and the resorts, again, are for gay men. And a woman named Amita Chaudhary, who is a 38-year-old cisgender woman, who, I'm reading this from the article, who identifies as part of the LGBTQ community. She's a cisgender woman who identifies, so I guess she's, I guess that means she's lesbian. I, I think that's what that means. She filed a complaint against the Island House Resort, claiming she wasn't allowed to rent a room there because she doesn't identify as male. Uh, the resort argues that they have areas, some areas, open to women, but they restrict the clothing optional areas to men. Female guests can stay at an adjacent guest house, but not go all over the property. The judge says... You must allow women all over the uh, property of the gay men's resort. And she, she says, by the way, um, in no way do I, this is from the Keys Weekly, in no way do I want this to be an attack on gay men. I fully support them having safe spaces that are welcoming. I don't want to go to outer space either, but if someone suddenly said no woman were allowed in space, I'd be the first to protest. 
And the resort is saying that they re- refused her a room, not because she's a woman, but because she behaved poorly and was being disruptive. But see, it's always the case that the way in which you try to weaponize rights and laws uh, against others comes back to bite you. There's an Amita Chaudhary out there for every group in this country that thinks it should have separate rights, special privileges, its own set of rights. See, when we got away from the idea that everyone has rights, human rights, civil rights, whatever you want to call them, the the Bill of Rights, when we got away from the idea that, hey, I just want what everyone else has, no more, no less, when we convinced people and sold people on the idea that if they identified in a group, and now everybody does, right, um, that group, because of past discrimination or injustice or meanness or whatever, needs its own plussed-up set of rights, its own privileges, if you will. Once we, got, once we went down that road, that's always going to come back to haunt you. I'm almost, I I guess I'm taking pleasure in this, and maybe it's mean for me to do that, but um, it couldn't happen (laughs) to a nicer group of people. So we'll see what happens. They may have to tolerate uh, Amita's presence in their their midst. So hope everybody gets along. Stay on your your blanket. People started sending me, like a a couple of days ago, people started sending me this, this story in various forms. And um, I, I just wasn't very, really very interested in it uh, because I'm not a fan of this person. I'll explain who it is in a minute. And then I started hearing other hosts telling this story. And I took another look at it, and it's fake news. It's, it's not a real story. And it is a st- I'm not going to name anybody, but these are people you know and probably listen to radio, television, who have gone with this story like it's absolutely true. And the story is about Garth Brooks. And the story says that Garth Brooks is falling like a rock. That because he has been supportive of Bud Light and sells it at his bar, nobody wants Garth Brooks anymore. Garth Brooks is out of business. His tours are being canceled. His residency in Las Vegas has been canceled. And all of these stories are attributed to a site called Dunning-Kruger Times. And that just sounds fake to me. Well, I've never heard of it, Dunning-Kruger Times. And it is fake. And it even admits that it's a fake news site. It's a satire site. Dunning-Kruger is a psychological term. The Dunning-Kruger effect is when low-intelligence people overestimate their abilities or knowledge. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. So they've got this fake news website. And the story says that Garth Brooks had to cancel his residency in Vegas because people are so mad at him for supporting Bud Light. Well, it's not true. In fact, he's selling tickets into next year in Vegas. And I'm not a fan of Garth Brooks. I'm not defending him. I don't like him. I don't care about him. But it was so tempting to believe the story because we all know how stupid Bud Light has been and is being. And um, and so it was tempting to go with the story and to talk about the story. I even heard one host start to talk about it 
someone corrected and said, well, hey, that's a, that's a satire website. And he, he argued. He didn't want to hear it because he so wanted to believe this story. And these are people I like. I'm not, I'm not hating on these people. But this is a problem I have with conservative talk radio and conservative TV and conservative websites. And, and it's, I've been wanting to say this, so this is a good time to say it. We have to be telling the truth, okay? Or we're no better than the people we bitch about. And we have to check. It's okay if a, if a regular person retweets something and they didn't know it was fake. That's fine. I mean, that happens. But in our job, in our business, we need to get this stuff right. Because part of our job is making sure you don't waste your time with stuff that isn't true. You know, that... I'm supposed to make sure in what little time you have, you can catch up on what's going on, you can get a handle on what's going on. And that's, that's what I'm paid to do. I'm not helping you if I put every conspiracy theory and every fake news story that comes along on the air. In fact, I'm, I'm not only not helping you and not doing what I'm paid for, but I'm hurting you. But the other thing that's going on with conservative media is they're afraid of their own listeners and users and viewers. I see it all the time. I can tell hosts and commentators who are afraid of their base. They never call out Trump. They never call out Republicans. They never call out Fox News. Look, you can support all those things, but once in a while they're wrong, right? Everybody's wrong once in a while. They're afraid to ever say it. If we can't do that, if we can't call out even somebody we usually agree with when they're wrong, what good are we? I mean, it's frustrating because everything is getting dumbed down right now. Everything. We just talked about it with music and what Steve Lukather said. Let's not be a part of that, right? Like, let's, let's be the resistance to the dumbing down. And, and that's why I was disappointed in how many people went with the Garth Brooks story. Because it's so dumb and so easy to check. And not true. I always kind of figure that roughly half of us are from here and roughly half of us moved here at some point. And I'm in that category. I moved here. I was I moved here 29 years ago. And um, this weather that we're having right now is a little it's a little extreme. But I was thinking about this last night, and I don't know how you feel about it especially if you moved from cold weather climate like I did, I'm still glad I'm here. I, I, I would not trade, uh, like, no matter how much I might complain about 104 degrees or having to take three showers a day, um, I don't want to go back to winter. You know, I, I love summer. And when I was thinking about this last night, I was thinking that I love summer, but I don't love it the way I used to because you never experience summer the same way you did when you were a kid. Remember how you would count down to summer vacation? And no matter what you had planned, and we never had anything big planned. Our family didn't go on vacations or travel. But we would count down and we would anticipate. You'd have thought we, you'd have thought we were living lifestyles of the rich and famous. We were so excited about summer. And then all we really did was sleep a little later, not go to school, ride our bikes all day, play wiffle ball, uh, tournaments in the backyard that were endless and stuff like that. Drink out of the hose. 
But we loved summer and we appreciated summer because when you're a kid, summer has a very definite beginning and a very definite end. I forget what the calendar says or the seasons or whatever. Summer begins when school lets out and summer ends when school (laughs) resumes. It's over. I don't care what it says on the calendar. When you're back in the classroom, summer's over, right? And now that we're adults, summer is just another day, another week. It, you know, we, everything is the same in our lives, right? Like you're not doing anything different because it's the summertime. You're working, you're not working, you're retired, you're, you've got your routine. But there are certain, I don't know, memories, uh, sensations that just make me love summer. And I wanted to see what yours were. Uh, Like the first thing I think of when I think of, of, of a summer memory or a summer sensation is you're, you're lying out there maybe next to a pool or a, you're at the beach or you're wherever you are, the lake. Your eyes are closed. You're soaking in the sun and you can hear water. And maybe it's splashing water and then maybe it's kids jumping into the water and maybe it's people swimming. And that is such a great, relaxing feeling. I don't know what it is. I, I can be near water. I don't even have to be in the water. I can just be near water. And I'm feeling better already. And then that sound that wet feet make on the cement or the deck around a pool. And the yelling and the screaming of kids in a pool. Some people don't like that. I, I love that. I love that sound. And... um they're not my kids, so I can keep my eyes closed. I don't have to watch them, right? Uh, what about you? What, what is your best summer memory? It could be a, a sound. It could be a, an, an impression, an experience, a sensation. It could be the smell of freshly cut grass, which obviously we're not smelling very much right now because we're not cutting the grass, thank goodness. Uh, what would that be for you? What's the best summer memory or impression 210-599-5555. I know for those of us of a certain age, riding our bikes all day, drinking out of the hose, just knowing we were free, we didn't really have any big plans, but it felt like anything was possible. And when I look back on it now, it was me and Timmy Greeley and John Smeraldo and Kenny Tedesco just riding our bikes around. Uh, not, you know, but anything could happen, you know. And uh, just loved that. Our, our, our parents, I always say our parents didn't know where we were, but I think they kind of did. Remember we were talking a day or two ago about neighborhoods and how they used to be very functional and people knew their neighbors and they knew their neighbors' kids. And, they, you know, people watched each other's kids. And you even, even if you saw kids from, like, the next neighborhood, the next street, you knew where they came from and where they went. Um, stuff like that. I don't know if kids are experiencing that nowadays or not. I don't know if we have that kind of free-range uh, childhood, but just like riding your bike all day. And um, and and the, the, the interesting thing is when I think about summer and my summers, they were very unstructured. Like my parents didn't plan any of this. They didn't sign me up for anything. I'm not complaining when I say that. I I'm glad they didn't. And nowadays, when you hear people talk about their kids, like, what are your kids doing this summer? The first thing people tell you is what they've signed them up for. 
And I'm not putting that down if your kid's in a baseball camp or band camp or whatever. I'm not putting that down. But do you think we may have taken it too far to where there isn't any, like, unstructured, unscheduled, just make it up as you go along kind of time? What do you think about that? 210-599-5555. And memories of summer, sounds and smells and experiences. And Ben is on KTSA. Hi, Ben. Hey, good afternoon. Uh, to me, it's not summer until you hear the cicadas buzzing in the trees. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is a good one. I don't even know. I mean, I, I, is it is cicadas, are they the ones that make those really loud, long kind of noises? Right. Is that what a cicada does? They come out of the ground early in the morning, and they okay. come out of their shell and make the wings and fly off. We used to talk about, what's a June bug? Is that the same thing, or is that something else? Uh, the June bugs are more like beetles. Okay. Do they make any noise? And, no, but they fly right into you. Okay. Because I know when I, when I was a kid, the adults would say those were the June bugs we could hear, but I think you're right. I think it's cicadas that we're hearing. And then, of course, at night, the crickets, right? you got to have the crickets. Definitely. And one thing uh, we did when we were kids and no one thought anything of is me and my friends, we used to ride the city bus downtown to the Texas Theater to watch a matinee and Back then, yeah. 12, 13-year-old kids on a bus by themselves, yeah. it was common. Yeah. Yeah. Now we'd have to call uh, the authorities and put it on CNN. Yeah. That's a great that's a great story. Ben, thank you. 210-599-5555. Uh, favorite summertime memory, impression, sensation. Uh, Bill is on the radio. Hi, Bill. Hey. Hey, Bill. You there? Yeah, I have to be. Okay. Yeah, summer summer memories. Uh, talk about the swimming pools. I grew up right off McCullough, just about five blocks south of North Storm Mall. My dad is still there, 90 years old. But when we were kids back in the 70s, there was an older couple on the next block that has a swimming pool, and they erected a flagpole. And every summer, if they raised the green flag, that was open invitation to go swimming in their pool. Oh, wow. And, wow. Yeah, they would bring out lemonade and snacks. You know, it was unbelievable, you know. Wow. And if we didn't do, yeah, if we didn't do that, we'd walk from our house right there again by North Star Mall to Alamo Heights Swimming Pool and mm-hmm. go swim in there for the day. You know, 50 there you go. That is a great memory, out. that whole deal with the flag. Oh, that, I'll bet you looked for that first thing, right? Well, you know, yeah, we'd get out in the summer, we'd just sometimes <laughs> sit on the curb and wait with our snorkels and our fins, man, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great yeah, image, I mean, waiting to see which flag. Now, was there a different color flag if the if they weren't doing it, or was no, it just the green just, flag? Just, just no flag or green flag. You okay. Know? So green flag is good, no flag, you don't get to swim. That's right. And I'm talking, uh, I'm telling you, 10 to 15, 20 kids, man, were yeah. out in that pool and just had a ball. She'd bring out snacks and lemonade and whatever, you know. It was, that it was is, awesome, you know. Just, that is a great so memory. Cool. Yeah, there's you so know, many ways like that it, wouldn't. Yeah. That probably wouldn't happen today for so many reasons. No Bill, way thank not. you. Fall down, butt your head. Yeah, okay. Right, right. Thank you, Bill. Great, great story. Great memory. Think about. I was going to say close your eyes, but you might be driving. Uh, think about your best summer memory, or sensation, or impression. It doesn't have to be an event. It could be just hey, whenever I hear, uh, you know, this, or I smell a barbecue grill, or I. Hear kids splashing in the pool, whatever it is that takes you right back to summer. 210-599-5555. And um, I think nowadays people view summer 
and their kids. I, I'm not trying to generalize. I'm I'm certainly not trying to lecture or be a parental expert, but like a lot of times you you get this mindset where we've got to get things done. Okay, this is the summer that we have to sign you up for this and get you that. And I don't know. I, I get it. I know you have to do those things to a degree. But have we lost the idea of the unscripted summer, you know, where there isn't a plan and you, you get up and you, you're on your own. Just don't get into trouble and be home for dinner or or at least, you know, make it up as you go along. Because what we made up was stuff that I don't think could have been scheduled for us. Our parents couldn't have arranged those bike rides all over town, Right. They, they couldn't have arranged the, the wiffle ball tournaments we had. I remember we, we'd play wiffle ball in the backyard, and we would make lines in the grass. We, we realized you could make lines in the grass with tide because we didn't have lime, you know. So we would get the tide, and we would make the lines. It killed the grass, which my dad was not happy about, but it made the lines to the bases and stuff. So, I mean, that, this, this, kids have to make up some of that stuff. You can't schedule everything. 210 599 55, and Al is on the radio. Al, good afternoon. Hey, Jack. Uh, you got here five years after us. I moved down from uh, Wisconsin, Minnesota, all that snow country. So I've been listening to you off and on for your 29 years down here, and uh, I I relished summers because it was unstructured. You went to the mm. pool, learned how to do a jackknife, learned how to do a backflip, learned how to do a gainer off the one-meter board, and then we're looking at these older kids on the three-meter board going, mm. wow, wow. I First time I went off a, a three-meter board, I had to jump because it was way too high. Yeah. So the other thing is uh, bike rides. We had to have those uh, baseball cards or whatever with the closed ends uh, and the spokes. Oh, and yeah, yeah. They didn't make nearly enough noise. You had to get balloons and tie them off. They made much better <laughs> noise. Sounded like, sounded like a motorcycle. Yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, welcome back to San Antonio. <laughs> there you go. Those are great memories. I forgot about the baseball cards. We definitely did that. Absolutely. And um, of course, only the cards with the players we didn't care about. You know, we didn't put anybody good in there. But the Absolutely. put the reserve uh, we put the reserve infielders in the uh, in the baseball spokes. Uh, Al, thank yeah. you. Great ones. Uh, appreciate your long time listening too. Uh, Karen is on KTSa. Hi, Karen. Hello. How are you so what's today? your summer memory, Karen? Oh, gosh, I have so many. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where do I start? Um, for me, and actually a lot of my childhood was spent here, but I also grew up all over the world. Dad was in the air. Mm-hmm. We kind of went here and there and yonder, you know. Um, but my best summer memory were my older brother and I would spend the summer when dad was stationed at Langley in Virginia, we would spend the summer mowing everybody's yard. Mm. And, you know, I'd mow the front yard, he'd mow the backyard, and then the next house, switch it. And, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun for us. And I love the smell of mown grass. Oh, yes. Yeah. Because it brings back those memories. Not only does it smell good, but when you look back at a lawn you've just finished, that must be how like a painter feels when he finishes a paint. I just, I'm so proud of that. It just feels so good, right? Mm-hmm. And exactly. and you're saying you did it. You and your brother did it. So was this to make money? Yeah. 
Yeah. How old were you when you were doing that? What age were you at? I was 10. Yeah. How many people would let their 10-year-old go out and earn money now? (laughs) Right? Well, mom and dad, especially mom, because dad worked all day. Right. um, Dad would, he didn't really care, but mom was like, she drove us around and said, this street, and then this street, and then this street, and this street. Within those streets, you can do, go where you want, do what you want. Right. Within reason, as long as you didn't break any rules. Right. Um, and she said, I will drive around and check every once in a while. But most of the time, she just trusted us. And yeah. yeah. We didn't like, we didn't lay eyes on, you know, we didn't see her all day. We'd go out first thing in the morning and we'd come yeah. in time for supper. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Ten years yeah. old. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, Karen, if you ever get the old urge to cut a lawn, um, swing on by, okay? <laughs> I'm 64 uh, now. <laughs> not not going to do, okay, well, I had to I had to at least ask, you know, I'd have to just in case. But uh, that is a great yeah. one, Karen. Thank you. Thank you for calling us. Thanks for listening. Uh, 210-599-5555 on KTSA. Chuck is on the radio. Hi, Chuck. Hey, so I grew up on an operating ranch and uh, the summers were occupied doing all, you know, doing stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. But the big thing that I remember from there, and my sister and I had help, we had sheep and goats. And so one of the big things that my family had to do in the summers, we sheared goats. We crew would come in and uh, goats would be sheared. And my sister and I were on the shearing floor pulling fleeces. Uh, pulling, pulling all the burr out of them, putting them in the bags, mm-hmm. pack, packing it down. Our, that was something we did. That was part of what, what we did for the family. And mm-hmm. The other thing that I really miss about summer, and I don't, you don't, for whatever reason, we were experiencing this change in the weather. Summer thunderstorms. Yeah. The smell from from that is just amazing. Yep. yep. Well, you're right. And you'd go outside after it stopped raining, and it felt like a whole new world, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, we, you know, I grew up on a horse, but we had bicycles. And so, ditto on the clothespins and the cards and the spokes. Yep. And yep. stuff like that. Yeah. We, we definitely needed to make some noise. Um, I don't know if other people did this, too, but I would always pretend I was driving a car. Like, I would imagine that it was a car because I couldn't wait. Now we drive cars, we don't think anything of it, but when you're a certain age and you're a boy and you you can't wait to be that old, you just, I thought about that way more than I probably should have. Like, I probably should have been thinking about girls as much as I was thinking about driving a car, you know what I mean? Well, I had older cousins that had, back in the day, they had hot rods, and boy, I, I definitely wanted that, so yeah. yes. Yeah, now that was uh, that was my big my big fantasy life back then. Chuck, great call. Thank you, sir. Good to have you. On five fifty and one zero seven one KTSA Jack Riccardi show. By the way, we're live uh, right now, and we're live Monday through Friday from four to seven p.m. 
But you can also get our show as a podcast, meaning if you prefer to listen at night or in the mornings or on weekends, uh, just go to KTSA.com, pull down the uh, on-demand uh, tab, or just look for the Jack Riccardi Show podcast anywhere you uh, get your other podcasts. You'll probably find us there. And um, the most recent one you would find would be yesterday's show. It takes a few hours from the end of a live show to the time when the podcast kind of uh, materializes. So um, we, uh, We're talking about summer memories, uh, whether they're your childhood memories, a specific thing you did, used to do, always did, or it might be might just be a, a sensation like the like the lady that said the smell of freshly cut grass or the sound of a swimming pool or the ice cream truck coming into the neighborhood. You could hear it a couple of streets away. You started running toward it. Uh, what what do you think about when you think of summer? Remember summer? Associate with summer? I, I was saying at the start of the hour. It, it, summer is more special when you're a kid in school because it has a definite beginning and end, the end of the school year, the beginning of the next school year. And the in-between for you is summer. I don't care what the calendar or the meteorologists say, right? That's summer. Uh, now that we're out of school, sometimes you don't even realize summer's over. You know, you're still having hot weather in October, and you're like, you know, but this really isn't summer anymore, right? 210-599-5555. Um, so what's a great memory, sensation? Uh, Getting get a lot of email. A lot of people mentioning uh, like wiffle ball, badminton, other things you played in the backyard. Did you you and your siblings have like a all-summer competition or tournament or whatever? We would just play the wiffle ball. We, we would literally wear out the bats, break them. We'd go through more than one bat, just using it that much. Um, did you sleep outside in the summer? Did you put a tent in the backyard or pretend you were in the wild or cowboys and Indians or whatever? Uh, 210-599-5555. Natalie is next on the Jack Riccardi Show. Hi, Natalie. Hi, how are you, Jack? Um, I'm good, thank well, you. I grew up you? In, the, um, in Durango, Colorado in the mm. uh, 60s and 70s. And Beautiful. we lived in the best place. It was right across from the fairgrounds. From across the river from um, the Animus River, and you could hear free concerts coming right at our house. And then uh, my girlfriend Lisa and I, we always spent the, the summers uh, tubing down the river, and you could hear the sound of the Silverton Durango train, the Durango train that goes into mm-hmm. Silverton. Mm-hmm. And um, we loved playing baseball, and we loved being outside and sleeping under the stars every mm. night. Wow. So it was Those are great. Like, a beautiful childhood. <laughs> that really is. I mean, that's just picture perfect. It was. And you know what? You know how I got introduced to Texans was because they were the tourists there. And they used to always say, my, yeah. my mom was a banker, and she'd always say, well, Natalie, you know, the Texans keep Durango green. Because <laughs> 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 they brought in the, the money. So it's like we learned to uh, appreciate the tourists. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I'll tell you what, that's a great, that's a great memory, but welcome, welcome to Texas. We're glad you're here, well, right? I've been here, I've been here for 30 years, and, and um, uh, Randolph Air Force Base brought us here, yeah. and we ended up staying. Yeah. So I've been here also for 30 years, yeah. and love, love San Antonio, still go back to Durango to visit family and friends, and, but no, I, uh, Texas is my home now. <laughs> and now, now I'm a uh, tourist in Durango. <laughs> I feel, boy, I feel the same way. I feel the same way. This is home. 
Uh-huh. This is home. Nicely said, Natalie. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for the call. Thank you for those memories. Uh, 210-599-5555. Um, we, we, I think a lot of people now plan a trip uh, with with the family in the summer, and that's great. Um, I, I never, I, it never even occurred to me when I was growing up that we were not doing that. I, I mean, I'm not trying to sound fake humble or whatever, but we did. I don't think I could check with my brothers and sister. I don't think we ever even asked. Well, how come we never go anywhere? Yeah, you know, you'd see the ads on television for Eastern Airlines or whatever, but. That just seemed like something in another universe. And we weren't poor. We were, they were just careful with money, and there were four of us and a sick family of six, and, you know, that just wasn't in their universe. They took us to the beach. They took us to carnivals and uh, stuff like that, and we amused ourselves a lot. But, you know, um, I don't know that that was anything we really missed. As adults, we've all had the chance to do a little traveling, some of us more than others now, but... Um, I'm not sure that's the most important thing you can do. I mean, you want to make memories and you want to make memories with your kids and stuff like that. But, um, I'm not sure, I'm not sure we really lost anything or, or were lacking anything because we never like packed a suitcase, got on an airplane, et cetera, et cetera. I know that's again, pretty common nowadays. 210-599-5555. Summer memories and stories and stuff like that. And Tom is next on the radio. Tom, good afternoon. Hey, Jack. Love the question. Um, This has to do with the kind of unstructured aspect that you were talking about. But for me, it was just being able to stay out late and kind of stay up late. Because you really Mm. couldn't do that during the school year. But, um, you know, specifically thinking about kind of those junior school years, just kind of walking around the streets of your neighborhood at like 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, just kind of talking and and just kind of growing up, but it really just, yeah, it has to do with kind of staying out late. I remember being uh, a teenager when my friends and I, we all had our first cars, and we would be out front, the cars would be parked all over, we'd just be leaning up against them, just talking about cars, mm-hmm. meaningless stuff that, you know, but it felt so good, like you said, to be the street lights were on, it was dark, the mosquitoes, and nobody was in a hurry to go home or, or come in, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, your parents were fine with it and, you know, you weren't going to disappoint them by going off and doing too much. You didn't really go too far from home, but I mean, you kind of, you kind of went far enough away to start to feel independent. And I thought that was, that was cool. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great one. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate having you today. Uh, 210-599-5555. There's a, um, a great book called 10 Things That Kill a Child's Imagination by Anthony Esselin. We had him on the show this is now probably 10 or 15 years ago when the book came out. It was one of the most reacted to interviews we've ever, ever, ever done. And uh, he's a brilliant man. He's written other books since then. But this was a book about what Tom was just saying. It was a book about unstructured childhood. And the premise of his book, and he writes it in a very uh, kind of provocative way, is that we overschedule our kids. We are too involved in their time management. I mean, of course, your, your kids have to go to school and they have to go to dentist appointments and you got to get them to the things they got to do. He, he's not saying ignore them. He's saying let them have as much unstructured, unscheduled time as possible. Let them waste time. Let them daydream. Let them look at the clouds. Let them, you know, whatever. All right. And 
in that time is real growth. That is good for the spirit. That's good for the imagination. That's when you daydream about what do I want to be when I grow up or whatever it might be. It's okay. You and I would never dream of, of wasting a day or wasting an afternoon. There's always so much to do, but childhood's the only time you can do that, and you have to do it. He makes this very strong case. I'm not, I'm not summing it up very well, but if you pick up the book, it's, it's really about the need to back out of their lives a little bit. And see, I think our parents had to do that. Like my parents, my dad worked. My mom was taking care of us and the house and cooking a dinner every night and doing all the other things that we didn't know she did but that kept our family going. And there was no one to be the, you know, the cruise director. There was, there was no one to organize events. So we did it. And we turned out okay. And you know, you probably went through that too. 210-599-5555. Renee is on the Jack Riccardi Show. Hi, Renee. Hey, Jack. How's it going, bud? It's going. Nothing better for me, a hot summer day, and you get a rain shower out of nowhere. Yeah. That smell. Yes. It, yes. That just shoots me right back to when I was a kid. Yes. I don't know when we're going to get one of those again. It might not be till, it's be a while. Be till the fall. Yeah, you can get a water hose and go out there and spray it, but it ain't the same. No, you're right. Uh, those those rain showers or thunder showers, you'd go right outside and everything would be green and it would have that smell. And, of course, it would cool it down 20 degrees. It's a great feeling. Oh, yeah, it's the, it's the best. Either that or sit, laying down on the roof on a clear uh, summer night, just looking at the stars. There you go. You know how to do it. Very good, Renee. Thank you, sir. We asked on the JR poll today about... Uh, State Senator Roland Gutierrez is, is challenging Ted Cruz for the U.S. Senate next year. Would you vote for Roland Gutierrez? He's a former state rep and a state senator from this area. Um, we've offered him and invited him on the show. So far, we haven't had him uh, accept, but he's, he's welcome to come on, uh, as is Colin Allred and any other candidates. Uh, but are you interested in Roland Gutierrez over Senator Ted Cruz? 96% said no. Uh, new JR poll tomorrow live when we start at... Uh, 4 o'clock here on KTSA. Um, so we've been talking about summertime memories and just either your childhood or maybe even, it doesn't have to be a specific thing. It could be any time you hear, smell, see, think of, X, takes you back to summer. What would that be for you? 210-599-5555. You know, a lot, I'm looking at the email. A lot of people have mentioned and the callers have mentioned summer rainstorms. So we need to... <laughs> Are we are we thinking of that because we're not getting them or what? We need to get one of those or we forget what that feels like. Uh, Marshall is on the radio. Hi, Marshall. Hey, Jack. How are you? I'm good. How you doing? I'm doing well. Well, for for me, it's the freedom of summer. Uh, our family moved to San Antonio in 1980, and we moved right next door to my aunt. Uh, so we both had single moms as parents, him and, and my mom. So me and her youngest, Gilbert, we would just disappear all summer. We would mm. just grounds change from various locations in the house, and we would just disappear. Yeah. And we would be gone until, like, right before it got dark. So we, yeah. we walked down the, to the neighborhood uh, pool. We'd be gone all day. We'd take the bus downtown to the Aztec Theater and watch karate movies. And keep in mind, I was 12 years old. <laughs> Uh, and I think my cousin was 11. So we would be yeah. gone. They would not know where we were. 
yeah. and we'd come home at dinner time. Um, probably shouldn't be doing, shouldn't have been doing that. Um, no one knew where we were. <laughs> well, I don't know though. I mean, look, we all did it, and we're all you know, we're all here. You know. Yeah. I would never and, you, and there's no substitute for that. I mean, I'm sorry, but I don't think I don't think kids are better off under that constant surveillance that they have now. I'm not sure that's better. Yeah, well, I mean, in, in our defense, we both had parents that were in the nursing field, so they were gone a lot, you know, mm-hmm. working, and they were the only yeah. source of income. So, right. You know, so fortunately, Grandma lived in the neighborhood, so we kind of checked in with her every once in a while. But other than that, we were freebird, yeah. so to speak. We just disappeared. Yeah. No, that's hey, that's great. That's a great that's a great memory. Marshall, thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Uh 210-599-5555. Um uh Catherine says uh my mom would put our pajamas in the freezer until <laughs> until right before bed. I never heard of that. That's a pretty good idea. Why didn't we think of that? Man, now I want to go back. Try that. I may try it yet. Um you know what else I think was was common when we were kids in the summertime was you would go visit a relative or maybe stay with a relative. And I'm sure that still happens. But like I had one summer, I mean, it was the summer when I was 10 that I spent like two weeks with my aunt and uncle. They were wealthy and they had this little summer cottage right on the beach in Cape Cod. And it was, I thought I was the King of England. I mean, it was just a very modest cottage, but it was right on a very nice beach and West Yarmouth, Massachusetts, and they would spend a lot of time there in the summer. I got to spend these this like two week period with them. Um, my siblings didn't get to go; it was just me because I was the oldest. Great memory. Um, they didn't really do anything. I mean, they fed me, but <laughs> I basically just went to the beach all day, every day. Got incredibly sunburned. Uh, there was a deck. I felt like you know. I thought I was like one of the Kennedys. You know, it was just a great memory, and. Um, we had gone to the beach, you know, we, had, we would go to day trips to the beach with my family, but this was like living at the beach. Are you kidding me? So that was a great memory. If you can ever do something like that, just, you know, break up the ordinary, break up the monotony. Uh, Liza is on KTSA, Jack Riccardi Show. Hi, Liza. Hi, Jack. My memories basically of summer were the fact that because I had four siblings who were all older than me, didn't want anything to do with me because of the mm. age difference. Yeah. So, of course, you had to find ways to amuse yourself. All of my friends didn't live close by. So most of the things I ended up doing was basically the sidewalk chalk to do the hopscotch, jump roping, yep. hula hooping, yep. pulling out my metal skates to go around the neighborhood roller skating or just, you know, they they set up a tetherball in my backyard. My parents did. So I was doing that on my own. But uh, of course there was always the drive-in on the weekends. That's the only time I saw my parents during the summer was when they took us out on the weekends to go to the drive-in movie. Is there like a particular movie or outing to the drive-in you really remember? No, it was whatever was showing on that weekend. Whatever was on. Whether I wanted yeah. to go or not, <laughs> I was collateral damage more or less. You know, just gr- 
get the five kids into the car and and take them there down go. there, whether there they want to or not. <laughs> those are all those are all great memories, Liza. I, I know what you feel like too. And I, although I was not an only child, my siblings were so much younger than me. I spent many a summer amusing myself until they were old enough to do things with. Thank you for that. Thanks to everybody that called and wrote. You can. Uh, remember, you can hit the Jack chat line. If you didn't get through and you want to leave a summer memory, just call 210-599-5550. And you can call that number anytime and leave your first name, your city or town, and any comment about anything on the show, including these summer memories, 210-599-5550. And remember, our podcasts are available at ktsa.com or anywhere else you like to find podcasts. Live back here tomorrow at 4. I'll see you then.